Today I talk with Professor John Mingers. He's Professor of Operational Research and Information Systems at Kent Business School, University of Kent. He's an academician of the Academy of the Social Science and he's been an associated for Ms. Quarterly. Professor Mingers has published extensively in top journals in different fields and is one of the highest cited British scholars. His research interests include research metrics, the nature of information, meaning and knowledge, the use of system methodologies in problem situations, multi-methodology, and the philosophy of critical realism. He's in the top 2% of world scientists in information systems and operational research field. Thus, philosophy does have an impact. In this podcast, we talk about the development of philosophical interests and how the quest to answers inspires exploration of philosophical streams about scholarly innovation and creating the future, how PhD students should meet the challenges of philosophy, and much more. It is my pleasure to bring you Professor Mingers. Hello, Professor Mingers. Hello. Happy, happy to have you at our Sigfield uh, podcast. Welcome. I'm very pleased that you've uh, invited me. It will hopefully be very interesting. Yeah, I'm confident that uh, our talk will be uh, very interesting and we can actually explore topics that are, let's say, the work behind the work. What, what is happening? Mm. What is your, let's say, history? What is your perception? What are your ideas? So I would like to open it with briefly explaining how you actually historically get involved in, let's say, certain philosophical streams and discussions. So younger generations will know what the path was like uh, some time ago for you. Yes, going back a long way. I've actually listened to a couple of the other podcasts you've done. Thank you. And I was struck by how similar it was, particularly to Shirley Gregor's, mm-hmm. and that she said at the beginning about what interested her in philosophy. Because yep. um, I was interested at quite an early age, although I didn't at the time realise it was philosophy, which uh, is a bit strange, because mm-hmm. I've, when I was quite young, like a teenager, I found that I had these questions um, that seemed puzzling to me. Um, And like many people, when you're a teenager, you wonder about how should I act? How should I behave? You're trying to discover how you should be. And um, just like Shirley said, I thought uh, that it was important to have knowledge that you should somehow base your actions on knowledge. Um, But that then raised to me the question about what is knowledge? And I remember formulating to myself at the time this problem that given that I'm born when I was, Uh, we know certain things. Had I been born 100 years before, I would have known different things. And if I were to be born 100 years in the future, I would know different things again. And so I found this problem, which was basically that knowledge is relative to where and when you exist. And uh, this was something that I sort of never found anybody else who seemed to be interested in discussing it. (laughs) It ends when we were at university and you'd have sort of... late night conversations, but nobody else seemed to be interested in this question or other questions about how you should behave and such like. Yeah. Um, and then uh, a couple of years later, after I left university, I was working, uh, working in computing as a computer programmer and then later as an operational researcher. But I like reading books. I chose, picked up books from bookshops to read. And um, I'd heard the name of this person called Popper uh, from my reading, but I had no idea what he did or who he was. Uh, and again, that's interesting because both Alan Lee and Shirley have also mentioned Popper as one of the yeah. important influences on themselves. And I was in a bookshop and I saw this little book, which was actually, I think, 
just uh, in the Fontana Modern Master series about Popper. And I thought, oh, I'll read that. Don't know what it's about. And I discovered to my amazement, really, that these questions that I'd had and I thought were really only my questions were actually part of philosophy. Uh, <laughs> it may seem very naive, um, but there were chapters in the book on knowledge and what is knowledge and how can we prove what knowledge is. And I realised that it had a name, epistemology. Gosh, that was yeah. amazing. And um, that was really my starting point uh, in discovering this thing called philosophy, which I had no idea about. Yeah. And at the time, I was also reading a lot of books on another area of interest, which became my interest, uh, uh, systems thinking. Yeah. Um, systems thinking has been one of the main um, sets of ideas that I've worked with. Yeah. Uh, and my experience at the time, again, a bit like Shirley's, was that I was working in companies uh, doing operational research, which meant essentially building mathematical models, simulation yeah. models, statistical analysis to try to help the companies work better. Um, so I came from a quantitative background, but what I actually found was that these mathematical models wouldn't really work in practice because they didn't really cope properly with human beings, yes. human beings rather yeah. complex things. There's politics, psychology, all sorts of things going on, which the mathematical models really didn't encompass at all. Yeah. Um, and so those two things together actually led me to give working and go back to university. I decided I wanted to go back to university, do a master's uh, and follow up some of these ideas. Yeah. And so I found a course, which was very lucky for me, the particular one it was called Systems in Management, mm -hmm. uh, which was being run by someone called Peter Checkland. And he was <laughs> known at the time, but was to become very much yeah. well-known later on, yeah. uh, developing what he called soft systems methodology. Yeah. It was all about this precise problem of how do we actually change or develop um, OR and systems thinking to be able to cope real people and values and ideas and interests and all the sort of messy stuff that goes on with real people. Yeah. And, and so, mm -hmm. um, you can ask? No, no, I was... As you mentioned, I always find that somewhere, sometimes when you discuss with the younger people, they say, okay, we don't have a philosophy course on our PhD studies or something like that. But mm -hmm. when I talk with people that actually had very uh, strong influence or are, let's say, influenced by certain philosophical streams, you find out that they are not actually following PhD courses, but it's like inner drive that you want to answer certain questions. And then you find literature and read and talk with people. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yes, it is the inner drive, the need to answer these questions. I, I, and um, I did the master's course and I took the time really to just read lots and lots of books. And I'd never studied sociology. I'd never studied philosophy. I'd never studied anything like that on my degree. And I just read what seemed interesting. Yeah. And I decided to stay on and do a PhD. And my PhD was really about social systems and could systems ideas be applied to social systems yeah. um, and i realized that a lot of it was philosophical or the importance of philosophy and there wasn't then a course uh, on the phd program um, so i went to the undergraduate philosophy department yeah. and found a course i could do there yeah. and uh, another great thing i think a lot of things that have happened to me uh, over the years have been quite fortunate Happen, you know, things happen to turn out well without yeah. necessarily. 
Um, and so there I did a course in the philosophy of science and the philosophy of social science, mm -hmm. which was the only formal sort of training I'd had. Um, but the philosophy of social science was again very interesting, turned out to be very interesting for me because the person who taught it, Russell Keat, yeah. um, taught it all around the work of Habermas, uh -huh. uh, German sociologist. Yeah. So philosophy of social science, instead of covering lots and lots of different things, he did the whole thing through Habermas. And I, again, at the time, found Habermas's work really relevant to what I was thinking about yeah. in terms of making decisions, in terms of social systems and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and that, again, Habermas became one of the main sort of ideas in the background or foreground of my work throughout the yeah. time. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. I think, you, I think it, it is important or would be important to have a philosophy course on a PhD programme. And indeed, that's what I teach on our PhD programme. Yeah. We have a PhD programme and there are about th three or four courses on it, one of which is philosophy, philosophical issues, which I teach. Yeah. Um, but as you're right, as you say, if people really have the desire and the drive inside them to find out things, they will find ways of doing it. Yeah. And, and I find it important not uh, uh, to be, not maybe understand, or, but be informed by the philosophical streams because very often uh, the philosophical stream, which you can say yeah, I belong maybe or I favor this stream more or this stream more, actually impacts how you research or how you try to solve a uh, problem. So my, my, my question is that did you in, a, in this life, uh, uh, work life and uh, reading and writing and researching, do you think that in a way how you build it, your philosophical position? Is it like... Uh, maybe pluralistic, maybe more, let's say, devoted to, to, to one uh, philosophy stream, how, how, how it actually lead to, to the state where you are now, so you can elaborate. Yeah. Well, again, that's partly an inf influenced by my particular background experiences. So I started out on the hard side of things as a mathematician, as a statistician doing operational research and very mathematical things. And then through the masters in soft systems and my PhD, I went right over to the other side and actually became very interpretive mm. and uh, phenomenological and very soft. And at that period, I, I was quite sort of scathing and negative about the quantitative side of things. I'd become completely on the other side. Um, during my PhD. But I then came again and realized, actually, if you go all the way to the far side of things and you become totally soft and everything is just a view or an opinion or a belief and mm -hmm. you can't do anything to be the case, then you can't do anything either. Yeah. Um, action becomes lost. You can't say this one's better than that one or this way is better than that way. And that's always something else which has been of importance to me, I think partly because of being an operational researcher, somebody who was very concerned with effective action, trying to make things work. I've always been concerned that ultimately my ideas or my work should lead to things that were of practical importance, yeah. um, rather than just being ideas by themselves. So I think I was fortunate in having both the quantitative background yeah. and then going into the soft side of things. But then that obviously leads you to have a big dilemma, because if you go to the interpretive side of things and you take it on board seriously, then you sort of lose the real world. Yeah. And it's very 
to get back and find the real world and actually accept that there are real things out there and we can have uh, knowledge of them. And in that's for um, helping me with that chasm yeah. in the two um, was where critical realism came in, yeah. which has been one of the main sort of philosophical works. In fact, that also goes back to when I was doing my PhD because uh, the guy who taught me the philosophy, Russell Keat, wrote a book with a philosopher, with a sociologist, John Urry, about a realist view of science. Yeah. And a well-known book, and they were actually at the time precisely working on trying to get back to having a, real, real, a realism in their work, yeah. despite the sort of critiques of interpretivism. Um, and I even knew of the work of Bhaskar that Bhaskar was doing back in the late 70s. Uh, but I didn't really do much with that for quite a long period. And then much later, I sort of realised, actually, that's that's the way out for me of this chasm between yeah. positivism and interpretivism. How can I uh, how can I get back to having a real world whilst recognising the, the uh, problems of our understanding and perceiving it? Um, and I found that critical realism was the answer to that. Um, and that brings with it this idea of um, pluralism and multi-methods. Yeah. I had both quantitative methods that I used and quant yeah. qualitative methods, and it seemed to me that you actually needed both by then. Um, you couldn't just get rid of quantitative methods, and equally you couldn't um, ignore qualitative methods. So therefore what you needed was uh, a, meth uh, a philosophy that allowed both forms of research to um, be seen as valid. And if I can reflect on what you say, it's like you can start, it's, if you have uh, important question to ask, it's important to start. You might choose one philosophy, then you might say, okay, I can see what the other philosophy, and then you can start moving. You don't need to be, let's say, deterministic in a way that at the beginning what you found it workings and then you don't you stick to that your whole life but you actually explore in a way to be more or less aware what is happening and how let's say when you are aware what might be the best uh, uh, let's say stream to, to to follow i'm just like trying to make it a little bit easier for the younger scholars not to be too stiff maybe in a way yeah. in the very beginning yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was quite lucky with my PhD, and I think, I think I was a lot luckier. Or people in my day had a much easier time with PhDs because basically we weren't told what to do. We didn't have a lot of courses. I used to see my supervisor once a term, and he'd, "What have you been doing?" And I'd say, oh, "I've read a bit of this and I've read a bit of that," and he'd say, "Oh, fine, off you go then." And you could just do exactly what you wanted. And my inclination at the time was just to read and follow up ideas as much as I could and not feel that I had to be bound by anything. Um, and that's what led me to read all sorts of what was seen as quite weird stuff at the time, back in the late 70s, uh, like Foucault and Habermas and uh, Derrida and people like that, just because, and Heidegger, just because I found their ideas very interesting. Yeah. And to struggle with those, this is another thing I think young people need to be aware of is that these people, many of them, are really difficult to understand. You can't just read their books and think, oh, yeah, right, that's just got that. And you need to understand a lot about what came before them and what they were reacting to. So then you have to go back 
to the people that they were reacting to and read them. And then you find yourself in a whole big train of reading all these people in order to get back to understanding the first one you wanted to understand. And you need time to do that. And as I say, I was lucky with my PhD, I could just do that. Whereas PhD students nowadays, they have, they're much more controlled. They're much more, they have review meetings every few weeks and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And you've got to get your first paper written by year two and you've got to have published by the time you finish everything's terribly driven towards some result um and i wouldn't have been able to find out what i did uh, if i'd had to do it in those circumstances and the other thing i'd say is that in terms of my own research yeah. i've i've always found that i'm quite happy to take on and read things in areas that i don't know anything about yeah. um as you're suggesting i think a lot of people feel themselves to be very bound you know they've come up through yeah. their discipline they're in marketing or they're in finance or they're in is and they feel as though they're very bound by the limits of the things that they've done and what's considered to be the right things to look at and um i'm always surprised at the way in which people the age-old thing about people splitting either into quantitative or qualitative yeah and really not liking to have to do work on the other side so you find quantitative people who are very happy analyzing a lot of data but yeah. you interviews or meetings with people too and they don't like that yeah. and equally you know people who are good at the soft side of things but give them some numbers and they can't do the numbers yeah and i think it's important to understand the world and to take action in the world that people make the effort to try and improve their capabilities so that they do feel able to do both and to explore whatever they feel needs exploring and not feel they can't do something just because it's not what they've done in the past. And when I when I hear you, I just sometimes I get uh, emails from PhD students or uh, and other people that listen to podcast. And my my question is like, okay, we know that you have to you you need time to read the philosophical, you need freedom to explore, etc. But on the other hand, these younger scholars are pressed by okay, PhD, you need to one paper to get promotion, you need three papers to get tenure, yeah. you need 10 papers, etc. And sometimes there is, uh, let's say, trying to balance it between what, what the current state, let's say, requires and what yeah. you might say is good to delve in depth in uh, solving and um, uh, getting understanding, better understanding of problems and provide solutions that can have real impact and that is also reflected a lot of in our discussions in the information systems field but if you are doing your phd now because you have strong experience now because you're a phd tutor and you're giving classes on phd students etc what do you think will be let's say the let's say in a way normative advice to to younger scholars if they want to like what you were interested in certain questions how to explore those questions and how to meet the the institutional requirements to publish and and develop something that would be let's say a yeah group. i think it's very you know i think it's very difficult genuinely because i've been director of our phd program i was director of the phd program for a long time and i um had a lot of phd students and i know just how much more pressure they are under and particularly in the uk i don't know whether you have it over there but we have this thing called the research assessment exercise or the research excellence yeah. framework where they we, we don't have that here we're more relaxed <laughs> that's 
that's hugely pressured for us in the UK. That is the big thing which drives universities and and everybody has to have publications in three and four star journals. Anything less doesn't count, uh, which makes it even harder because the, the top journals are all very strict, both in terms of the quality of work you've got to produce and also yeah. the you know what sort of things they expect. They don't really like things that are off the wall or over the edge. Yeah. Uh, and so I do. I don't really have an answer to it. I do think it's extremely difficult for them. But I mean, to, going back to philosophy, I do think you need to distinguish between people who actually want to do papers in philosophy yeah. as opposed to merely knowing enough about philosophy to be able to do the research that they are doing properly. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, my course, the, the rationale of my course is that everybody, whoever they are and whatever research they are doing, they need to be aware of the philosophical assumptions that they're making and the philosophical issues that their research raises. And they don't, I'm not asking them or expecting that they write massive, great philosophical articles, merely that they know the issues, they know the questions, and they are aware of them in the research they do. Yeah. Um, it was expressed very nicely, not by me actually, but by one of my co-authors in the, I don't know if you read it, the introduction to the uh, Aegis special issue on philosophy. Yeah. But it starts off with the phrase, uh, all research is philosophy in action. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, I think, precisely the point that whatever research you're doing, it is philosophy ultimately underpinning yeah. it. And it is necessary to understand enough about that, not too much, and not spend all your days doing it to be able to, well, to deal with the issues. On the other hand, I think if you are somebody who is wanting to actually contribute philosophically, then there is no way around doing a lot of reading. But as you suggested, you will probably, if you are that person, be driven to do that anyway, yeah. because that is inside you. Uh, and hopefully you can then choose the research topic and shape it in terms of what you do to be a enable you to um, explore the research, the philosophical research areas that you're interested in doing. But I do think it's very difficult and I do have a lot of sympathy for PhD students nowadays in comparison with how lucky my generation were who could really just do whatever we wanted. And uh, as long as we published a few papers occasionally, nobody really fussed that much. Yeah, and um, what, uh, when we are talking about like, and I like your advice and I think it's a very valuable advice is if you are starting, you need to be aware about the philosophical issues surrounding the, the, the field and domain. You don't need to be expert, but to be aware what you are doing. It. And I would like to make a connection to this is like from your experience, when you're writing your papers and then uh, your research to be empirical, theoretical, it to be mixed, conceptual. How do you actually um, juggle with to present your position, to present your, uh, let's say, philosophical standing, to explain it, but should that be dominant? Should not that be dominant? Somebody says, okay, you write two sentences. Some might say you write whole chapter. What is critical realism when you write for a journal information systems? And how, how do you make, let's say, this translation from reading and thinking in writing an information systems paper that actually you want to show that there is a philosophical support or let's say uh, inclination uh, how, how do you do that? So, 
do you stay i'm i'm a critical realist and i write this from critical realism perspective because or you just say the best option is this one and this is why it's like a little bit how you translate philosophy from maybe more abstract like where you say these people are hard to be understand like uh, when they write how do we yeah. put that on a, how do you put that on the paper yeah i mean i think um one of the main uh, things that I've tried to do because of where I came from was that I found myself um, reading all this stuff that was quite unusual for information systems or operational research. Yeah. And I regarded myself almost as a bit of an explorer. I would go off and read this heavy material in sociology or philosophy because, not just because out of interest, but because I thought there might be stuff of interest there, which would be useful in information yeah. systems or in OR. And I then regarded what I was doing in my earlier papers, probably, as bringing back the bits that I thought was important and trying to make them understandable for an IS or an OR audience and try and show them, actually, this stuff is interesting and this stuff is useful. So for me, particularly my early papers, I was seeing it as trying to make as clear and easy as possible um, these ideas from other domains uh, for an IS audience. And um, I think I was quite successful in that because a lot of people, one comment that people make to me um, when they meet me or, or whatever is, oh, yes, I really enjoyed that article because I could really understand it. Yeah. And so I'm trying to write um, clearly whatever it is you're writing, um, is absolutely essential. And that's one of the things that Popper taught us because that was one of the yeah. things that right from the beginning said, he said, I'm not interested in trying to make my writing dense and difficult to read. I want to make yeah. it as clear as possible because what's important are the ideas, not the language. Yeah. And um, so I always try when I'm writing to imagine I'm having a conversation with someone like I'm doing with you now. Yeah. And I imagine I'm trying to explain to someone who is, a sort of intelligent person, but not somebody who knows much about the actual the topic. Yeah. Um, you know what I do or what it's about. Now, now it does vary in, in terms of the amount that you need to put in, because obviously with something like critical realism, it came in uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And at that point, nobody had heard of it or knew about it at all. So yeah. obviously we're going to write anything. Um, you had to spend a while explaining it. And that carried on for a few years, but I think now it's been done so many times that yeah. it's now reasonable to write critical realist and not have to explain it. You know, obviously yeah. new people, yeah. but not have to explain it so much and get on with things. So I think it's partly to do with how new what you're writing about will be to the audience. Yeah. Um, but I also find, I do find, I must say, again, as some of your other people hinted at, um, the ref getting paper published that have got high philosophical content yeah. can be very difficult um, because the referees all have their own views yeah. and they won't really be the same as yours. And, uh, you know, you can get an, the, the amount of time that you have to spend redoing, redoing, redoing papers in order to get them published to try and meet these people and their views who you, the trouble is you may well disagree with them. Um, and yet you know that it does cause quite a dilemma um, because you know that if you want to get the paper published, you've got to get it past the referees. Yeah. And so you're 
get them to agree to what you're saying and yet at the same time you don't want to have to say necessarily what they want you to say yeah. i remember in fact one very good example was a paper that i published in information systems research back about 2000s which was about mixing methods together yeah. multi-parallel work and that paper became my highest cited paper it's got something yeah. like thousand citations um, and it also because i had a because I used critical theory at the time rather than critical realism, I'd written it from a critical theory point of view. And one of the referees made the comment, um, yeah, I quite like the paper, but I think you should lose the critical theory stuff because that won't go down very well in America. <laughs> and, you know, what do you do with that? I mean, I'm, yeah. it's not something that if that is the heart of your paper. And uh, he, said, he was saying, yeah, don't use those terms because they won't like it. <laughs> be pragmatic <laughs> yeah yeah just say something else um and so it is a continual battle and uh, i have found on several occasions with top the best journals um that after going through a lot of rounds of changing it in the light of what the referees and the editors want i've ended up withdrawing several papers um because i came to realize that the only way I would get it published there was if I changed it to be not what I wanted to write, yeah. Um, yeah. what Reeves wanted me to write. And that's the thing about maybe philosophy, because I mean, if you do a, a straightforward empirical paper, you've got some, there can be some criticism of your data or your methodology, but by and large, um, you've got what you've got. But if you've got a philosophy paper, there's always different viewpoints, different arguments that there can be and so it's very difficult to um deny or not have referees who may come from a different philosophical background and have problems with what you want to write and I, i'm it's a, just a joke but it might be also true that is why all the great philosophers wrote books they didn't wrote <laughs> papers well, yes rather than papers <laughs> i mean particularly actually this guy of critical realism has never hardly had a paper published he just wrote books yeah, <laughs> didn't have to get any papers published at the time, <laughs> and that is, I, I think it was Baskar who had also problem defending his PhD, and he needed to to rewrite it and uh, to make it a yeah. little bit more uh, acceptable, acceptable in a way. And yeah. I, I think, I think, I think one practical thing is to actually, there are journals which are much more um, accommodating to particular viewpoints and less prescriptive about what they want to publish. Uh, particularly with regard to philosophy so um, information and organization for example i think is yeah. a good journal very wide you know publishes a lot of uh, interesting material and also journal of information technology is also like that and to some extent aegis yeah uh, i think often the the um the european journals are more open to philosophical discourse perhaps than some of the american ones yeah i think i think it's uh, hunch. I think that the Europeans are more uh, willing to go in philosophical issues and devote more time yeah. on them than the, the North uh, uh, or US uh, uh, colleagues. Yeah. So, but that is just a, a, a hunch in a, in a way. Although there are, I had scholars in the podcast that were actually from US and that they pushed, like Alan Lee, who pushed the qualitative aspects in the, yeah. in the mainstream uh, uh, research. And I, I just, this is not maybe here, but I just want to, what, what is your opinion in a way? We say, okay, we take 
from sociology, from other departments. There is also now, for example, a lot of scholars take from physics, etc., in order to, let's say, see how they can implement that in information systems. My, my perception is that, in a way, information systems are uniquely positioned because you have this technology and human aspects and interactions, etc. What is your opinion? Should sometimes I, as scholars, be more bold in proposing their own philosophical, let's say, ideas, streams that could be, let's say, uh, used by other disciplines on, or other uh, other places? In a way, it one previous, I think, with, with Jan Recker was discussion where he was saying that, okay, we need to be bold now. We are mature now. Now we need to be more uh, bold. And what, what, what is your opinion in, in this way? Are we, are the, is our field providing interesting events on which we can actually build something or concepts philosophically? Yeah, well, it, it, it should be able to. I mean, when you consider that the vast changes that are happening in the world over the last 10, 15, 20 years have all been driven by information technology. Yeah. The world now is totally different in the sort of social sense from how it was 15 to 20 years ago. And that's all been driven really by the rise of technology and, and the web and such like. Um, and information systems should really be the discipline that is the discipline which studies and looks at and understands and develops ideas about that. Yeah. But I feeling is maybe wrongly that um, IS as a discipline has always been behind rather than in front. Um, if, instead of being yeah. there at the front of the revolution of the internet and saying what this is what we think is going to happen and this is our theories about how it will develop, it was almost, it's developing, wow, and IS is trying to catch up by seeing what's gone on and analysing yeah. what's gone on, but always behind times. And I don't quite know why that is. Um, maybe it's just literally technology you know, the academic world is quite slow paced in terms of its change and technology is incredibly fast paced. Yeah. And what used one day is old news a few months later. And it's just extremely hard to catch up. But yeah, I do think that there is huge scope there for look for being a discipline that is right at the forefront of things. And it's not just the technological aspect of it, but it's the effects on, on society, it's the social aspects of it, psychological aspects of virtuality and disembodiment and such like that and also obviously the philosophical aspects of um, ethics and and privacy and all that sort of stuff that yeah. is being continually pushed to the forefront of things by the development and rise and, and develop and change of technology so i do think there is potential there and i do think that we should aim to be more um more ahead in terms of trying to see what will happen in the future yeah. uh, but quite how you do that is another matter I don't know and I, I was asking and now when you say how you do that it's another matter I read one um, newspaper article about a physicist who is now very famous because of his PhD 20 years ago and it's about black holes something I don't remember but his PhD was like imagine there is a planet like that and now imagine that there yeah. is a force like that and now imagine that there is something passing by so now i can show you that if we ever find something like that it will be like this and after yeah. 20 30 years people actually uh, saw that what he was suggesting like it was 
like theoretical yeah. physics. I always argue that yeah. maybe we have empirical physicists and theoretical physicists, and we are probably good in empirical eyes, maybe, but we should be more in theoretical eyes, you know, like theoretical. And this is why they were both, and 30 years ago, 20 years ago, he was just inventing things. He got his PhD, now it got, they found an event like that, and they said this might explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Um, I'm always struck by the that there are some very famous pieces of work that were done by people in their PhD theses. The main one of which is Kuhn and the yeah. idea of Thomas Kuhn. Yeah. He came up with those ideas in his PhD thesis and yeah. um, has you know, sort of totally revolutionised large amounts of academic discourse. Uh, just on the basis of his PhD. So yes, I do think visualization and imagination, I mean, in a way looking to science fiction writers because science fiction yeah. writers, the people who have really explored a lot of these things and a lot of the, the ideas that they had maybe 50 years ago uh, are now beginning to be seen as, yes, actually we might have here to do that. We might have this sort of travel. Yeah. And they already explored the effects of many, many things uh, on what societies would be like under yeah. certain given certain things happening yeah. so <clears throat> sorry we should look to uh, science fiction and then see if we can actualize what they say and and that's when uh, I, I read uh, on i think it was star trek when they were building the set for recording the, the the movie they had problems to open doors like this like normal opening doors so they needed to find a way how to use the space and they made these sliding doors but actually <laughs> people were uh, from the both sides of the door, and they were pulling by hand the doors and closing them by hand. And then somebody said, okay, but we can build a mechanism like this. And then now every shop on the main streets has actually doors yeah. like sliding doors, electrical sliding doors opening. So I was, I was thinking that maybe if we be more, let's say, free to explore in a way, make speculative uh, papers, then maybe people can actually think about yeah. these, these ideas. Yes, there's not. I do think that IS journals as a whole, particularly the leading ones, tend to be very um, restrictive in what they uh, are interested in publishing. Yeah. And it tends to be quite restrictive to the current way of doing things. Um, again, looking back on some of my early publications, uh, I had explored all these strange areas like phenomenology, strange at the yeah. time. And I wrote papers about them and I managed to find certain journals that would publish them. Um, they weren't the leading journals, but they were reasonable journals and they were quite open to speculative kind of ideas. Um, and it's interesting that later on, it is those first articles of mine that were pushing the boundaries of what had existed up then, which actually became my most cited papers yeah. um, because they were there at the start of what was to become much more of a, a thing later on. Yeah. Uh, so I think without, and again, it comes back to the question about PhD students, because what, when you are most imaginative and, and less least bound to the current way of doing things is when you are young yeah. and you're just starting. And so again, it's really very important. I think that young researchers should have the ability and the confidence to be able to publish things which are quite speculative and are quite yeah. um, beyond the normal boundaries of things 
Uh, and yet that's quite hard for them to do if they've got to get a publication in a four-star journal for the ref. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to actually go beyond that and come up with and publish interesting ideas. And so I think I'm quite depressed really about the effects of things like the ref on research culture because it is just sanitizing it and it is just making it extremely difficult to publish anything yeah. or do work that is pushing the boundaries into interesting new ideas. And what do you think if we continue on this? What is the what is the future? What is the future generally about the ice field? We talked about the past, we talked about the current and what, what do you think is the future? Yeah, I don't know. I tried to think about that, but I didn't really um get very far in terms of with good ideas uh, about where it's going to go. Um, it does seem to me that that we do need, I mean, if you take a very broad distinction between theory and empirical work, large amounts of the stuff that's published is empirical work and it's very uh, routine and it's very much looking at what's going on in some organization or in some particular system just at the moment. Um, and theoretical work or, or imaginative work um, is really what we need in order to push beyond the boundaries of where we are at the moment. Uh, and there are people who, who are doing that sort of thing. Um, but again, it's quite difficult to often get it published. So I think the more that we can, as a discipline, uh, try to consciously create events and opportunities and parts of conferences and things like that, that deliberately encourage the development of wacky ideas or, or out of norm ideas and give younger people the space to do that, um, the more likely we are to come up with something that's useful and interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's more about the imagination now, because I think that when you see the, the, the the private sector, which the IT, the, the development of systems, I don't see it only in technology, but they're developing completely new systems, etc. They are rather imaginative. They, you, you, when, yeah. you see, when you see, for example, the ideas that like, I always use Twitter, they said, okay, we make it 140 characters. And then what you, what created is like beyond imagination and like how a small, Facebook page on, on the campus evolved in something that has certain major impact. So maybe we can actually, uh, let's say, be more imaginative and more, uh, I don't know, more speculative in a way. So something will come out true. Something will not come out. But I think also it's like with empirical work. A lot of empirical work, which is actually neatly, is not very valued in the practical world. It's actually not, yeah. not used. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that things like Twitter and Facebook, that at the time they came out, I don't think anybody, even the people who invented them, would, would have predicted yeah. what happened to them. You know, I mean, I remember when Twitter first came out and everybody scratched their heads and said, well, what can you write in you know, 140 characters? It's the same as text messages before that. Yeah. You know, the ability to do text messages in short things on a little phone was just seen as not very important and and it's interesting as to how nobody including is people as far as i'm aware really predicted and said yes actually this will become a really major thing yeah. and yet it, and yet looking back on it um i think it should be pos should have been possible 
to be able to see what it was about that particular thing, that particular technology or the um, affordances that it enabled people to have that would make it suddenly become so all-encompassing. Yeah. And that's exactly the sort of stuff that, that you're suggesting and that I'm agreeing with, is that how do we get the discipline to be able to think imaginatively like that? And the other thing that's just happening recently at the moment is the sudden emergence, apparently out of nowhere, of artificial intelligence stuff. Yeah. Um, now, I actually, one of my early research areas back in the 80s was artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> it was this period in the early 80s where AI started and people were developing expert systems. Yeah. And I was actually interested in that. And I started doing some research on it. And it all died away because we came to see that at that point of time anyway, our systems couldn't get anywhere near replicating what actual human beings could do. Yeah. And so artificial intelligence kind of stopped most of the time. But obviously in some places, possibly in companies, research has carried on and it's slowly built up and built up and built up to the point at which suddenly now they have got a te technology and a capability, um, which means they can do potentially useful things with it yeah. um, but it was a long time ago that it was starting and still now people don't really understand the limitations of it although it's much better than it was um, yeah. don't really understand the limitations of of what artificial intelligence can actually do yeah well i think that we we more or less covered uh, the history the present and the future <laughs> and i think that uh like what I can say is that we more or less see that allowing people to explore early days in the middle and allowing them to explore in the future can actually make significant contribution. It doesn't need to be outside of our field, but it could be in our field. It could move the field forward. And I think that this is like exploration, innovation, is what we are actually talking uh, uh, in the past 45, uh, 45 minutes. And I'm, I'm happy that we tackle this point and people can hear it that maybe you are under pressure or some, some let's say, um, constraints. But if you want to answer this question, you can self-learn, you can read books and you can try to imagine and see how this uh, can uh, work out in a way to, let's say, provide some impactful, uh, impactful work. Do you want something more to share with our future listeners? Um, I think perseverance <laughs> in the face of um, the problems of publishing stuff, um, following your ideas, having belief in the fact that you might have ideas that are different to your supervisors or other people's ideas, but they may turn out to be important and um, trying to make the space to follow those up and uh, see if you can uh, take them somewhere, which actually makes them worthwhile being able to work on and publish. Um, so I think confidence and imagination and willingness to um, not be too bound by uh, the way things are done at the moment. Um, I think there was a, a famous British writer called, Irish writer called George, George Bernard Shaw, yeah. who said, um, reasonable people shape themselves to the world, 
unreasonable people expect the world to shape it to them. Yeah. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, all change relies on unreasonable people. <laughs> and I think that's right, actually, because I think people are very forced into positions in which they have to just do what it is that will get them the PhD, that will get them the paper, uh, and get some more papers published uh, without pushing it a little bit. Certainly the papers of mine that have been, I've been pleased with most, and I think in many ways have been uh, the most impactful, at least as measured by citations and such like that, um, have been the ones that have been uh, a bit off the wall at the time or a bit pushing the boundaries at the time, but have then opened up the field for further avenues of interest. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you all you say, and um, I'm happy that I had you uh, as a guest at uh, our podcast, and I'm happy okay. that people okay. will, will hear you. Professor Mingers, thank you very much, um, and I hope we will see each other somewhere in the future in life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's lockdown. Well, yeah. thank you very much for doing it. I've enjoyed it, and I hope people will listen to it. I'm confident Thanks, that they will they will listen it. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.